Everywhere he went, RV Khan was telling people good news about Jesus Christ. For part of his career from 1960 to 1972, he was a missionary in Seoul, Korea. So you kind of expected him to go around and tell people about Jesus. But really, his official job was to be a seminary professor, taught in the seminary. He was a writer. He was a preacher. He would go and preach in the rural villages, and he also preached in that massive city of Seoul, Korea. And he also just loved doing evangelism. As a matter of fact, one of the things that he did is he went around and told people good news about Jesus Christ. He often gave people one book, The Gospel According to Mark. Uh, which story we'll finish today, uh, Mark 16, 1 through 8. He loved to hand out that simple, the shortest of the four Gospels, and share his faith. In one instance, he uh, met some young boys that lived in the street. They begged for food, and they went through rummaging through trash, trying to eat together a living. So he started a Bible study among them, and he shared the good news about Jesus Christ with them. In those years when he lived there, uh, there were actually hundreds of prostitutes working in many brothels that came around some foreign uh, military bases. And Harvey wanted those women working there also to hear the good news. So he went and started Bible studies in the brothels. Uh, he took with him there the gospel according to Mark and he went and told them good news about Jesus and he did it regularly. He shared good news about Jesus, but he also began to listen to the stories of the young women who worked there and he was moved he came to them knowing the world was full of sinners but he learned in their presence that sinners are also often profoundly the sinned against and he wanted to think about the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners and also for people that are severely oppressed and sinned against and so it shaped his ministry for the rest of his life and he kept going back talking about Jesus and he kept going back talking about Jesus, but he wasn't welcomed by everybody. As you might imagine, uh, the pimps and their thugs did not want him there talking to the women about the Lord Jesus Christ. They began to beat him when he showed up. So what's he supposed to do? He decided he'd keep going back. He would accept the beatings because Jesus loved those women. Jesus loved those women and Harvey wasn't afraid to die because Jesus had died for him and been raised in newness of life. And one day Jesus would raise him to newness of life as well. He wasn't afraid to tell them about those mistreated women, about his mistreated Savior. Harvey knew the Savior King Jesus was mistreated. Jesus had been stripped, mocked, shamed, and abused. His Savior had been crucified, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous and his savior had been raised from the dead and all who believe in him shall likewise be raised harvey could risk this ministry among the prostitutes and the pimps for he wanted them those pimps who beat him also to hear the good news about jesus and believe it such confidence and such courage where does one get it who can live like this can you and I entrust ourselves to any good news and stake our lives on it no matter what comes? 
Well, here's the beginning of the gospel according to Mark. Mark 1.1 says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus, the true King, the son of God. And now let's turn to the end of the story in Mark 16. Mark 16 follows on the heels of the death of Jesus Christ. He who came and lived a sinless life and was crucified in the place of the wicked. And there were many witnesses to his death and his burial. And here is how the gospel ends. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And they said to him, do not be, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, magnify the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and raised for us today. Help us see him, see our salvation in him, rest ourselves in him. And walk in newness of life, for we are united to him. Open our eyes, and Lord, we pray for those sitting here who have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you open their eyes that they might see your salvation in the Lord Jesus today? Amen. In a graceless age filled with spin, is there any good news you can trust? I won't spend any time convincing you that we live in a graceless age. I don't need to spend any time convincing you that we live in an age of spin. Is there any good news you can trust? Maybe you're wired like many people I know and love. If something good happens, we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Bad news, no problem. That's my address. I'm ready to receive more bad news. I prepared myself for that. But good news, I'm not so sure. Do I really want the vulnerability of hope? Do I really want to open myself up to really good news when all around me I see evidence of gracelessness? And people with their good news packages are usually trying to sell me something. And life is full of pain and sorrow and disappointment. Is there any good news that you can trust? I want you to know today that you can trust the good news according to this man named Mark who wrote this 16 chapter gospel. And today I'm going to tell you not only can you trust him and trust this gospel, you can even trust the ending which declares to you and me that Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, 
who was born of a woman, who lived a sinless and perfect life, who was crucified, a righteous person, in the place of the unrighteous. Not only was he put to death, he really died. He was buried. And this part of the story is about an empty tomb because Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And I want to show you today for like four or five reasons why you can trust that this story is true. And it's very good news. And you can trust it. First of all, you can trust this account of the good news because there were witnesses to the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the empty tomb that Mark tells you about here in Mark chapter 16. At the end of chapter 15, which we didn't read today, you get the story of Jesus crucified. You hear about darkness falling on the face of the earth around Jerusalem. You, it's a judgment scene. The judgment of God is falling on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's crucified. And you're told that there's two Marys and a Salome that saw him breathe his last. They witnessed his death. And then you're told that the two Marys, Salome's not mentioned again, the same two Marys saw the tomb where they laid him. There were these women that witnessed his death. He breathed his last and died. And then two of these women, they saw where they laid him. Now, where they laid him is important because a wealthy man who had good connections named Joseph of Arimathea, he went and took the body of Jesus, a corpse, got it from the cross, took it, wrapped it in a shroud, and went and had him laid in a tomb. And the women witnessed this. That's really important information. It tells you that the Lord Jesus Christ actually died, but there's witnesses to his death and to his burial. And then Mark begins this chapter telling you that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, now all three women again, they go to the tomb early. First, he tells you after the Sabbath, that would have been Saturday night. When the Sabbath end, they go and they get anointing spices. And then early on that Sabbath morning, they go to the tomb. And what do they witness but an empty tomb? There is a man in the tomb where Jesus was laid, but it's not Jesus. And the man inside that tomb, who's probably an angel dressed in sparkling white, tells them he is not here. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He is not here. He's raised. Off you go. And so that's the testimony of these women. You can trust this account of the good news because they're witnesses to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But here's another reason. In the ancient world, the testimony of women didn't count for anything. We don't think like that anymore, thankfully. But in the ancient world, if you wanted to make up a story about someone being put to death, buried, and raised again, the last thing you would do is make your primary witnesses three women. Because in a court of law and an official Uh, situations, their testimony was not valid. You can trust this story. The apostles are telling you and their friends, Mark, they're telling you what happened because they're truth tellers and they want you to know what really happened. Not only are these women the primary witnesses, but notice what you're being told about them. They went and got spices to anoint Jesus. Why? They're going to go take care of his dead body. In this part of the ancient world, bodies decompose pretty quickly and they've got some anointing oils and some spices. Why? Because they expect his body to already stink. And they're going to cover his body with spices to take the stench away and spend some time with their dead old friend. And also on the way there, they hadn't planned very well. They're like, oh my gosh, we've got the spices. We're going to go anoint him. We're going to cover the stench of his dead body, but we're not sure how we're going to get past that big old stone. Who will roll it away from us? 
And so those are really interesting details to throw into a story that you're just making up. Unless you're just telling the truth. You can trust this account that Mark is telling you because it's not the kind of story that someone would make up. These women, faithful as they were, here's the last thing Mark tells you about them. At first, they did not obey. Did you see it? In verse 7, the the man in the tomb says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us that the women did go tell the disciples. But here Mark is pointing out something that he's the only one that puts his finger on it. Not at first. They were seized with fear. They were very afraid. So as they walked by all kinds of soldiers and all kinds of people on their way eventually to Galilee and see those disciples, they didn't say a word to anyone. Why? Because they were very, very afraid. This part of Mark's gospel is ironic because all through the gospel, Jesus heals people and says, hey, go home and don't tell anybody. And what do they do? They go tell everybody. And now the women hear Jesus' messenger say, go and tell his disciples. And they go, and at first they're afraid and they don't tell anybody. It's ironic, but it's also relatable. Have you ever thought, you know, I do want to tell people about Jesus. And you pray about it and you plan to do it and you get in their presence and you think, but I think first I'll order a sandwich. And then, then what, what are you going to have in the menu? I'm not sure what I'm going to have in the menu. Let me think about that. And then you, then you pray, oh, Lord, maybe, maybe, maybe next time I'll share the, the good news about Jesus. Are you ever afraid? Are you ever worried? Do your fears ever seize you? Well, the women as well. The first witnesses, that was their initial, immediate experience. That's one reason you can trust this account. Because there were witnesses. Secondly, I want you to know this is not how the good news is. So you can trust this good news because it spread. We know that from the other gospels. We know that the, the women made it to the apostles and told them the good news. But we also know because we've heard the good news ourselves. The good news about Jesus Christ has spread from the women to the apostles, from the apostles to the early church, from the early church across the globe. And people have heard this good news, even as you and I have heard it. This good news spread. Third, you can trust this good news because the man who wrote it, Mark, John Mark from Jerusalem, lost his life to tell it. It was in the year 64 AD. Uh, Mark was in the city of Alexandria. He had gone as an evangelist. He had, he had all the stories about Jesus, mostly from the apostle Peter. And he'd written his gospel. And he went to Alexandria. And he founded churches in Alexandria. He was a powerful evangelist. Mark, who wrote this gospel. And he was talking about Jesus. And people began to believe in Jesus. And people began to come out of cults and come out of various religions. And it caused the problem in the city of Alexandria. And so the leaders of the city told Mark to stop it. And he said, I will not stop telling the good news about Jesus Christ. For he died for me. He lived for me. He died for me. And he rose again. And they said, fine, we'll take your life. And they did. They tied him up with ropes. And behind the animals, they drug him through the city of Alexandria over the cobblestones. And it tore his flesh and bruised him and nearly killed him, but it didn't kill him. So they threw him in prison for the night and they got him out the next day and did the same thing to him until he died. Well, that's the man who wrote this story. You can trust a man that'll 
die for what he believes as the truth. But the fourth reason I think you can trust this good news is that I really want you to know that Mark, who wrote it, wanted you and me to recognize that the Apostle Peter is the primary witness, the primary voice, the primary witness and testimony behind his gospel. Here's why. Here's how he kind of played his hand and signaled uh, what he was doing. Peter is the first named apostle in the story about Jesus. And then you see it right here in our chapter, Peter's the last name apostle or witness named uh, in, in Mark, in the gospel of Mark. And there it is right there. Go tell the, the disciples and Peter. And that was a way in the ancient world to kind of show, hey, who's the main witness? What's the main testimony behind the, the document that you're presenting here? And so Mark kind of wants you and me to recognize that Peter's testimony is the main one behind this whole gospel. If you've heard the story of Mark's gospel, knowing that Peter's the primary witness might tempt you to cynicism. Because, well, he's the first person called and he's the last person named. That's kind of prominent. Jesus had lots and lots of disciples, but he had 70 with him for a lot of times. He had 12 with him most of the time, and he had three with him almost all the time. And of those three, Peter was one of them, Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John had some very unique experiences with Jesus, so they were very prominent. And you might say, well, of course, Peter's the primary testimony, but I don't think I trust him because in half the stories, he's the most important guy in there besides Jesus. And there's some truth to that. He does bear witness to those things, to his unique role. But central to the unique role that Peter plays in the gospel, the good news story that Mark tells, is his embarrassing failures. Peter is the first one to recognize the first human to say, we know who you are. Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And they, all these answers, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the king we've been waiting for. And so Peter's the first one to recognize that. Props to him. And then Jesus says, his response to that is Jesus says, yes, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be mistreated and put to death. On the third day, I'll rise again. And the next thing that Mark's story tells us about Peter, his primary witness, is that Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter gets in Jesus' face and says, this is not how the Messiah does it. You're wrong. You can trust Peter as the primary witness because he's not afraid to tell you that he rebuked his Savior and Lord. But it gets worse than that. On the last night of Jesus' night, the night that he's arrested and betrayed and beaten and spit upon and mocked and abused, at one point, Jesus is uh, before a court trial and Jesus is on trial and Peter is in the courtyard warming himself by a fire. And Jesus has told Peter before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me this night three times. Peter says, no way, never, never, never. I'll never, I'll never deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And Jesus is inside. That's his prophecy. Jesus is inside and the soldiers are beating him and mocking him and putting a crown of thorns on his head. And one of the things they're saying to him is prophesy to us, prophesy to us. Hey, you're, you're, you're a big guy. Can't you prophesy? And Jesus is very silent inside. They're mocking him saying, please prophesy outside. His prophecy is being fulfilled by Peter who before a little slave girl 
denies Jesus three times. The first time, I don't know him. Second time, no, I told you I don't know him. The third time, Peter denies Jesus so strongly, he pronounces a curse upon himself and says, I'm swearing to you, I never knew the man. Fulfilling Jesus' word in the courtyard. Don't you see what I'm saying? Mark wants you to know that Peter is the primary witness behind this good news story. And when Peter tells you the good news story, he doesn't leave out the story that he's the one who denied his Savior three times one night in front of a slave girl. He tells you the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's a faithful witness, and you can trust him in the things that he told Mark and the things that Mark wrote down. But there's a deeper reason I want you to believe Peter's testimony. It's not just that he failed. It's that his Savior, Jesus, came to rescue failures like Peter and you and me. We read today, Josh read to us from Hosea from uh, chapter 6 and chapter 13. And then just really quickly, like in 30 seconds, I'm going to tell you what the book of Hosea is about. God's covenant people, the people who are supposed to know and love and obey God, they'd become really rebellious. They were wicked and stiff-necked and they didn't listen to the Lord and they didn't obey him. And in chapter 2, here is what the Lord said to his people. You are an unfaithful bride. That's his metaphor. And if you don't repent, this is what will happen to my unfaithful people. You will be stripped naked. You will thirst. You will face the thorns. What will happen if we maintain our rebelliousness? Stripped naked, thirsting, and facing the thorns. The very experience of the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross intentionally to take the place of rebellious people like Peter and like you and like me. Jesus Christ, who is the only righteous and obedient son who ever lived perfectly good, obedient and right, he faced the nakedness they stripped him and thirst from the cross. And they had pressed that crown of thorns on his head to mock him. They mocked Jesus. They mocked Jesus. They mocked Jesus. But now everyone who believes in him truly mocks death itself for he has overcome the grave. You can trust this good news about Jesus' death or resurrection because he's still rescuing people like you and me from sin and destruction. I did something a little odd for my birthday this year. Back in January, I told Christy and some friends that I wanted to go to the Love Lady Center to one of their graduation ceremonies for my birthday. That's kind of weird. Uh, but the Love Lady Center, in case you don't know about it, it's a center here in town where between three and 500 women uh, who were coming out of prison and in severe addiction go to the Love Lady Center to have their lives turned around by Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. He's got the power to save them. And the whole program is built on the living power of the resurrected Jesus who can save lives. And so uh, it's typically a nine-month program. The women start, and often they're very resistant and angry that they're there. And then they meet Jesus, and their lives are, are greatly changed. And the graduation ceremonies are fantastic. Uh, this day, about 16 women graduated and they just got up one after another, those who were able to speak and just gave testimony to the saving power of the risen Lord Jesus, rescuing them from the bondage they used to be in and making them his own. It was awesome. 
And on that day, I had my second conversation ever with Leslie Drake. Leslie Drake is the pastor of all the women at the, at the Love Lady Center. And I'd met him before, and, I, and we were talking before the ceremony started. I said, Leslie, how, how did you become the, the pastor of the Love Lady Center? And he kind of told me, but it was loud. And we met here at the church actually not long after, and he really told me the story about how he became uh, the pastor of the Love Lady Center. And this is what he told me. He said, he said Robbie, my, my father and my mother were both addicts. Uh, my dad was a serious addict. Um, he, he had three failed marriages and he was in prison for most of my childhood. And then my mom, she was worse. She was a meth addict. And I, I really saw her about once, about once a year my, my whole life. And I was like, man, Leslie, I get it. I was like, I understand that the, a ministry like this would be very appealing to you and you'd have a lot of empathy and you'd want to serve in a place like this. He goes, yeah, but there's actually a deeper story than that. He said, my grandfather is from Sylacauga. My grandfather uh, was a roofer. Uh, he was also a very reckless man, a wicked man. He was, at one point, he was in the KKK, a violent and evil person. But he was a roofer, and one day he was tacking metal down on a roof in Sylacauga, and a big windstorm came up and knocked him off a three-story building, and he fell, and he should have died pretty quickly. And they took him to the hospital in Sylacauga, but they recognized immediately we didn't, they didn't have the resources to, to save him. So they sent him to a hospital in East Lake in Birmingham called the East End Memorial Hospital. And when his grandfather got there, he was there for 18 days in the hospital. Uh, he had a, a couple of um, blood clots and his leg was shattered, absolutely shattered. And so um, then he had... Uh, he was, it was really bad. Then, then he had a third blood clot and he, and he died. End of story. Almost. Just before he died, he prayed. He turned to the Lord just before he died and he said, he prayed this, if you're real, I'll serve you. And then he died and all the medical professionals walked out and they left him there and they had to do their paperwork and do things. And there he was dead in the room. But then after a few moments, uh, the nurses, the nurses station started to hear some vital signs coming out of his room and they, they heard him, they kept going and they said, I think we need to go back in there. And they went back in there. They couldn't get to the door at first, which is interesting. But then when they got into the room, um, I don't know what color his hair was before uh, he died, but they walked in there and his, his, his hair was like uh, bright white hair. And he was alive and he walked out of the East End Memorial Hospital three days later. He had severe pain in his leg for a long time, and that pain helped him walk closely with the Lord. And then here's how the story goes. His, his grandfather ended up leading Leslie to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first believer in his family. Leslie became a believer about age 10. It was wonderful. Later in life, Leslie, who now believes in Jesus, who died for sinners and rose again, Leslie told his own father about the Lord Jesus Christ. His father became a believer and then became sober. It was amazing. And then, remember, the mom was the worst situation. A meth addict. Still only seeing Leslie maybe once a year. But when she turned 56 years old, she decided she'd had enough of her bondage. And she reached out to Leslie and said, I want help. 
I want to get clean. And at this point, Leslie had never heard of the Love Lady Center, but he wanted to help his mother. And so he began to search and do research and find the right program for his mother. And he read about the Love Lady Center and their Christ-centered approach to rehab. And he's like, that's the one I want to take you to, Mom. He went and picked up his mom and he drove his mother to the new location of the Love Lady Center. That is the former East End Memorial Hospital in Birmingham. East End Memorial Hospital, where his grandfather had prayed, if you're real, I'll serve you. The former East End Memorial Hospital, where his grandfather died but met Jesus. East End Memorial Hospital, where Jesus began to rescue him and his family one by one. I tell you, a dead man can't do that. Made up good news can't do that, but a living Christ and the good news about him is still saving lives and families one by one and often more than that. As you turn to the Lord for salvation, he's still rescuing sinners. He lived and died and rose again to save you so you can have eternal life. Have you turned to the Lord for protection and release from bondage? He's still rescuing the oppressed today. If you know him, since he's real and very much alive, will you serve him? Let's pray and meet him at his table so he can strengthen us to that end. Oh, Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that you who lived for us and died for us rose again in newness of life. And one day all things will be made new. Oh, Lord, we want to live faithfully for you because your salvation is great. So we come to you now asking that you would strengthen us through your presence and your grace today, O risen King and Savior. Amen.